Happy Lord's Day. <clears throat> it's good that we don't have to have seamless worship services in order to worship God. <laughs> so, thank you, brother. <clears throat> Today, we are not going to be in Titus. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Maybe a familiar passage to some of you. Um, this is a, a text that's been on my mind uh, probably the past month or so for whatever reason. Just been thinking a lot about this particular passage. And so I'm reading out of the New American Standard. In Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and that's where we'll be. Isaiah 6, <clears throat> starting in verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and am living among a people of unclean lips. And for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for a time that we can come and worship you in, in the singing of hymns and worship you in the hearing of your word. God, I pray that as your word goes forth that you would accomplish what you please, Lord, and God, we also want to pray for, as the message lands on our ears and penetrates our hearts, Lord, that you would stir in us uh, to be, to, to, to go away from here, Lord, uh, not unchanged, but changed, Lord, that we would be affected by your truth, and that we would be uh, eager uh, to rest in it, Lord, and to, to pursue what it is that you would have for each of us in our lives, Lord. God, we give you praise and we thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so a few years ago, I actually had the uh, privilege to go visit some family. They live in Virginia, uh, not too far from Washington, D.C., so got to take a trip up to D.C. and, you know, check out the sites and see the monuments. And one that impressed me most was... Uh, the, the one where Abraham Lincoln is sitting on this big chair. <laughs> and I remember walking up these long set of stairs and coming up to this huge monument. The thing is just massive. And just standing there in awe of how big it was, but how small I felt in that moment. And looking around and seeing, they have, uh, for those of you who haven't been there, they have like thing, uh, excerpts of the Constitution or whatever. They have these uh, amendments that are all around... Uh, beautifully written on the ceiling and on the walls, and, and it was just a sight to behold. Uh, another uh, wonderful sight that I was reminded of as I was thinking through this text was when I went to the Grand Canyon, and 
I had been as a kid, but going as an adult, it was a bit different. And I got to stand there while the sun was setting and, and see the variation of these colors that they began to change on the beautiful rocks of this huge canyon. As I'm looking down, I see this river that looks so small, yet it really is big. So in that moment, it was breathtaking to, to see this creation of God. And also another time of when I lived outside of the city and I remember getting out of my car at, at night and it was so pitch black outside, but I, I remember looking up and just staring at the stars and seeing the billions of stars that God had created and dispersed in the heavens, as it were. It was awe-inspiring, as I said. But I'm sure that some of you guys, you could think of remarkable places or scenes that maybe captivated you throughout your life. I can assure you that none compares to the scene to which Isaiah encountered as he entered into the throne room in this vision. None could even scratch the surface. Um, there's a, a lot going on in this throne room, but I believe that it's the one who Isaiah encounters that makes it most magnificent. He sees the holy king seated on the throne. Now, a fundamental aspect of our faith, a fundamental truth about God is that He is holy. The Scriptures declare that He is majestic in holiness, which means He is completely set apart and other than any of creation. God is fearful. He's loving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's wrathful. He's powerful. Yes, He's all these things. But centrally, God is holy. And I'm persuaded the more we grasp this attribute of God, the more it will compel us to a greater worship of Him. It, it ought to draw us into a, a deeper prayer life and provoke us to honor and serve Him all the more. And as we work through this text today, my hope is that you are gripped by the splendor of God and humbled by the exposure of your sin and grateful for grace and forgiveness that is found in Christ. And if you were to walk away today with anything in mind, I hope that you walk away with a greater appreciation for the supreme holiness of God and forgiveness that's found in Him. So this morning we're going to observe this heavenly throne room scene, and I want to look at it under two headings. And what we're going to see is the prophet's vision, and we're going to see the prophet's purification. So the first one, the prophet's vision, we see this in verses 1 through 4. If you look with me first at verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So I want to point out that it's an interesting placement of this chapter, actually, in the book, in the big scheme of things. Uh, this is uh, actually, uh, uh, we see the call in verse 8, the commission of Isaiah. So this would actually not necessarily be in chronological order from, ver from chapters 1 through 5 because Isaiah is already proclaiming and, and, and prophesying in chapters 1 through 5. So it seems a bit out of place, but it's an interesting uh, position, if you will, where Isaiah decides to place this in the canon. In chapter 6, we arrive here in a pivotal moment, a turning point, in Judah's history. It marks a new beginning 
of Isaiah's preaching. We have the, the death of Uzziah, which ends a period of uh, relatively uh, a prosperous time in Judah. Uh, and it was at a time when Assyria was weak. But what you would find in chapter 7 of Isaiah is that a new ruler comes in, King Ahaz, and war and weakness will characterize that king's reign, which allows for Assyria to become a dominant international power on earth. So this, this is a big deal. Uzziah's death is a big deal. And something to note about Uzziah is that he reigned for uh, approximately 52 years. So he had cr- quite the extent uh, of his reigning period for, from what I understand, is that he was a good king for the most part, but yet towards the end, he allowed for pride to get the best of him. Second uh, Chronicles 26, 16 through 23, if you go there and read, you'll see how his pride and punishment uh, led to essentially his demise. Um, he was unfaithful to Yahweh. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense at the altar of incense and was immediately rebuked by about 80 priests. And they record to get out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor before the Lord. So they're essentially, they're kicking him out of the sanctuary and saying you have dishonored God. And then the text goes on as Uzziah was angered at this with the priest. He was angry. And then it says that leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord before the altar of incense. And so they're trying to rush him out of the temple and he himself is like, I need to get out of the temple. I'm an unclean man. And and what it says is that uh, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. So what we have is one king, Uzziah, an earthly king, who left an earthly throne through death What we're presented here in Isaiah is with a supreme king, superior to any earthly king, the eternal one, the living God, seated on his heavenly throne. Notice Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. And that's an incredible statement. You know, as the Bible is clear, it says that no man could see God with his naked eye. John 4, 24 says God is spirit. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God dwells in inapproachable light and whom no one has ever seen or can see. 1 John 4.12 says, no one has ever seen God, yet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Exodus 33.20 goes as far to say, for you cannot see my face, no man can see me and live. And here in Isaiah's vision, he doesn't just get a glimpse of God. He sees the Lord and his glory, high and lifted up on the throne. And the word Lord here in the text, if you notice, it's a capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. Later you would see in the chapter, it's in all caps. Uh, Same English word, but different Hebrew word. Uh, In the Hebrew you have Adonai, which in the capital L, lowercase o-r-d, means supreme master or ruler, uh, the, the, the one who is sovereign, yet Yahweh is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning the I am, the, the one true God, the self-existent one. It was a name given from the Father of himself and was intentional 
uh, I believe, that's intentional that there's a difference in the, this wording in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it seems that the supreme king, as he's seated on the throne, is pointing to someone specific. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't Adonai used in the Old Testament for the Father? Yes, that is true. But if you think about Jesus and who he was referred to as, as in the Greek it would be kurios, which means the king. And you think a little further in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, which says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. So in John, the context there implies that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. And essentially, John is saying that Isaiah saw this Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Before his birth, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus enthroned in heaven, the uncreated reigning over all creation. Of course, yes, the, the glory of the presence of the Father was in the room as well. But as I think about this vision, I, it's interesting, you know, Isaiah does his best to communicate what he saw, but I don't know that words could truly communicate what Isaiah was seeing and experiencing in this throne room. See, he sees the Lord on the throne, lofty and exalted. Um, sounds a lot like what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth. It will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Adonai. He is Kurias to the glory of God the Father. He is high and lifted up. God most high. And uh, another fascinating detail we have here is the description of the robe, the, the, the train that's filling the temple. One commentator writes that in the ancient Near East, a king's greatest, uh, greatness would be displayed by the length of his train. But while human kings competed with one another for greatness, Isaiah saw in the all-consuming majesty of God blanketing everything with an overflowing robe. I've heard several people comment on this as well, talking about weddings of royalty, like the, the Queen of England, and seeing the incredibly long train that she had. And, of course, people are amazed by it, rightly so. The thing was insane. But you would imagine this train filling the entire room, blanketing over every pew and bursting into the foyer, bursting out the, the doors and the windows, it's an incredible sight. Look with me also at verse 2. It says, The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And some of you may be asking, what, what's a seraphim? <laughs> the, word, the word in of itself means um, a burning one. It, it's the burning ones. The term was used to refer to fiery serpents. But here... What we see is that these are angelic creatures that are attending to and guarding the throne. And they appear to be in somewhat of a special order of the angelic being. 
We get the description. They had six wings. They had two so they could fly. Two covered their eyes. They couldn't even look upon the glory of God because it was too great. It could be a sign of humility that God is so set apart that they couldn't even look upon Him, but also in the radiantness of His glory that as it burst forth that they couldn't even set their eyes on it because it was too great to see. And imagine looking at the sun for only a couple seconds and multiply that by a thousand. (laughs) And this is the glory that's radiating forward. They can't even look upon it so they cover their eyes. These are heavenly beings who are not sinful. They haven't experienced death of a loved one. They haven't experienced stress of losing a job. They haven't experienced failure and grief. Yet, notice their disposition before God. The two wings covering the eyes. They had two wings covering their feet. They're acknowledging their lowliness before God. And some recall that this is a similar story to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, where Yahweh said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. So, Likewise, the seraphim were on holy ground, so to speak, above the throne. They didn't have sandals to take off, but in contrast, what they did was they covered their feet with their wings. And if Yahweh declared a desert place to be holy, how much more holy is heaven itself? Whenever the divine presence appears, everything can immediately be sanctified. It's, it's holy ground, not on the virtue of anything in and of itself, but because God is there and God has declared it such. Every square inch of this temple in the vision and in reality <laughs> is holy because of the presence of the one who fills it. So by virtue, the seraphim's actions and what we see is that they're declaring, they are proclaiming God's holiness. Clearly, if God were to come in this room and be before us, we would fall on our faces like dead men. And let us live as if He's in the room. Because guess what? Ultimately, He's in the room. He's omniscient, He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's he's everywhere. The Lord is worthy of honor. He's one to be feared. He's perfectly sovereign and He's supreme. And like the seraphim, we have a duty to respond in such a way that demonstrates that we accept this truth. Do your actions proclaim this? Here, they covered their eyes and their feet as a proper posture and reverence toward God. So what has your life produced as a result of a proper posture and reverence toward Christ? Do you fear a holy God? Are you presenting yourself a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship? To the seraphim, they not only proclaim the character of God by their actions, but they actually proclaimed it as like a choir, and they were singing, holy, 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 We see in verse 3, it says, And the ones called out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. For the whole earth 
is full of his glory. I'm reminded of the psalmist, the psalmist, as he said, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name. Let's see, what we have here in our text is a, it's a repetition of this holiness, meaning there's a literary device here to create an emphasis. Uh, similar to when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when he was saying, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, what he's saying is, now hear this. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, even now, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. See, Paul, he's saying, if anyone's preaching this gospel that's, that's contrary to what you have been taught, let that one be accursed. Let me, let me say this again so that you understand to make it clear. If anyone is preaching another gospel, if any angel in heaven or any person here is preaching another gospel from the one that you have received, let him be accursed. And John's description of the throne room very similar to what we see here in Isaiah. Revelation 4, 9, 4 8, and 9 says the, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day and night. They did not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Day and night, they sang in choir fashion, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the God Almighty, the Eternal One who was and is and is to come. Typically, we will say that God is merciful, He is powerful, He is love, He is wrath. So to say God is holy once, that's enough. To say that God is holy twice, that would be emphatic. But to say that God is holy three times is superlative, meaning he's, it's unmatched. He's unmatched. It's a, the only attribute of God that the Bible mentions in this way. And that's in part why I argue that it is the central attribute of God. It's his central attribute and all the rest flow out of it. And his set-apartness, he is merciful like we would not understand. He is loving like we would not understand or comprehend. He is powerful like we cannot comprehend, etc., etc. It's notable that God's divine holiness isn't based on what he does, but because he is. Just like his goodness, he's not good because of what he does, but because he is. What else do the seraphim declare in our text? It states that the, the whole earth is full of his glory. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the earth and the world, especially right now, the first thing that, I guess, the first thing that comes to mind 
would be counterintuitive if I was to declare this, but if I was to be honest and I look at the world and the earth right now, the first thing that comes to my mind is that there's a lot of hate in the world. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of despair. There's war. Watch the news for 30 minutes. You may not have this perspective in a human sense, right? But as we come to the Word of God, we know this is true. And as if we were to take a step back and look at the world, we would certainly see that there is a display of His immeasurable greatness, His wisdom, and His power. In all creation, we look at creation, we see this despite what we have done or what we have made of it. God truly is glorious and the whole earth is full of His glory. And what does Isaiah describe next? In verse 4, he says, And the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of the one who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You got these foundations of the thresholds in heaven's throne room beginning to shake at the singing and the proclamation of God's holiness. Not only were the angels moved, but inanimate objects were moved. Unliving foundations and thresholds in the temple were moved by the holiness and presence of God. Let that sink in. And then we see this smoke billowing in this place. And this isn't a setting like in a church where they have fog machines and smoke machines to develop this whole you know, emotional atmosphere. No, that's not what's taking place here. But perhaps this could have been a reference to smoke coming from what was burning on the altar or more likely it's the significance of the presence of God. It's this all-consuming fire that's filling this place. Ezekiel 10.4 said, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the thresholds of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. And the cloud represents God's divine presence and His glory, but it also represents His power. We see in Revelation 15.8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. What a scene. What Isaiah communicates through his vision. So that's the first point, the prophet's vision. And second is the prophet's purification. We see this in verses 5 through 7. And verse 5 says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and living among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the seraphim were moved by God, the foundations and thresholds were moved by God, and the prophet was moved by God. He pronounces a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me. He, he declares judgment on himself, saying, I am undone, I am ruined, I am silenced at this sight. Why? Because he says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're not told specifically what Isaiah was guilty of as far as the sin of his speech, yet it's a profound statement. See, Matthew twelve thirty four says, 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So unclean lips ultimately are a result of an unclean heart. Isaiah hadn't recognized this until now, until his eyes had seen the king, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of armies. And he was convicted of his unclean heart, and it unraveled him. This is Isaiah's response to his sin after seeing the holy king and standing in the presence of pure holiness. It it did something. It was like a spotlight shining into a dark alley. As the light shines forth, it exposes all that's there. It presents everything clearly. So it is with his sin as the spotlight of God's holiness shined on Isaiah. He saw his sin. He saw himself for who he was. Clearly it became evident. Often when our sin is exposed, what we want to do is we want to run and hide. You could think about Adam and Eve in the garden, what they did after they sinned. They, They ran off and they tried to hide. Think about your personal experiences, maybe some real situations that you've encountered where you just wanted to run and hide. It's not the case here, nor was it the case with Job. Chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job came to the end of himself and he he heard with his ear, he saw with his eyes, and he repented, he mourned over his sin. In Luke 5, there were a couple of boats out on the lake, and Jesus got into one of them, and he was there with Peter, and he, he told Peter, cast your net over the side of the boat. Peter saying, well, Lord, we, we've been out here all night, we haven't caught anything, but at your word I, I will. And then what happened? All of a sudden, this miraculous event took place where there were so many fish coming into the nets that the nets began to burst. They, they had to fill both boats up with all this fish that the boats began to sink. They had to have guys come over, help us, help us, gather these fish into the boats. And then in verse 8, what do we see? It says, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, Peter recognized who was there with him. He recognized who he was standing in the presence of. And he was burdened with his unworthiness. When the glorified Christ revealed himself to John in Revelation 1.17, it reports, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. So in these examples, what we see is God's graciousness and the fact that he didn't strike these men dead as he could have, as he could strike us dead because of our sin, but yet God spared their lives. He spares our lives. Like Job, like Peter, like Isaiah. However, are you grieved by your sin. When you consider the holiness of God and who you are, does it wreck you? 
Are you like Isaiah saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am unraveled, coming, breaking forth up out of the seams because I am unworthy to stand before you. And the prophet, he was conscious of his unworthiness. But the truth of the matter here in our text, what we see in the scope of it is the sinfulness was it went beyond Isaiah. So the problem lie with the whole nation. It says it lies with humanity, a sinful humanity. The sin problem goes beyond the individual. However, in a salvific manner, we see it dealt with on an individual level. See, it's interesting that Isaiah confesses to be a man of unclean lips. And we'll see in a moment that his mouth is cleansed. And then proceeding, as I alluded to earlier in verse 8, he gets a commission to go out to proclaim with his mouth the truths and judgments of Yahweh to the people. So after Isaiah's confession, God deals with it individually as he dispatches one of the seraphim the, from the angelic choir to minister to Isaiah. Verses 6 and 7. Then, the one of, then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in which his hand in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this, is, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So this cleansing is an illustration for us of God's sovereign grace. And an implication for us and an illustration would be that God sovereignly saves through Christ, and he God ultimately authors this cleansing by His will. See, as wretched as we are, as sinful as Isaiah saw himself to be, you know, it could, we could easily think that forgiveness is not an option. But God, who is rich in mercy, intended for it to be a reality. See, the hot coal taken from the altar, taken from this place of sacrifice, it encapsulates the, the idea of atonement. It encapsulates propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, reconciliation. And so as he takes this coal and he touches it to the lips of Isaiah, he's doing it intentionally for his purpose, according to his will. And I would imagine that it would be painful, even in a vision, <laughs> for coal to touch your lips. And repentance can be painful. I, I heard it said once that repentance is painful because God not only wants to cleanse us of our past sin, but He wants to consecrate us for future service. And, and that's uncomfortable for the flesh to, to repent of our sin and to be consecrated for a future service in Christ. But thought it was encouraging at the same time here. It's assumed that Isaiah's cleansing was affirmed by the Word of God. See, not only did God assign the seraphim to apply this cleansing, but God also assigned the seraphim to announce it, saying, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you, and your sins are forgiven. So likewise, God has cleansed all those who will believe and has affirmed it by His Word. As we see in Ephesians 1, 4 through 8, it says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God's word has affirmed the cleansing of his people. And after reading about Isaiah's experience and maybe thinking about your own experience specifically in salvation, are you amazed? Are you appreciative for the forgiveness provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? See, God's Grace is free, but it's costly. It it came at the cost of the unique one-of-a-kind son. The one who condescended from his heavenly throne, the throne from which we see in Isaiah 6, verse 1, taking unto himself the likeness of man, born of a virgin, living a perfect life in this sinful world, dying a death he did not deserve, having been buried and raised three days later, conquering sin and death. Now he's seated right back on his rightful throne. See, the plan of salvation was not an afterthought. You, if you are in Him, were on His mind before creation. So, in the prophet's vision, what we see is these seraphim, these angelic beings. We see thresholds of the foundations, and we see a prophet who are moved by the holiness of God. Are you moved by the holiness of God? The one who is set apart transcends all of creation, who is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's completely other. He's so great that the radiance of His glory couldn't even be looked upon by the angels in heaven. And as you reflect on the person and nature of God, are you in awe? See, it's easy to find ourselves in awe at things like monuments, things like the Grand Canyon, things like art, star constellations. These things utterly pale in comparison with our God or to our God. And after hearing the prof- about the prophet's purification, are you reminded of your need for purification? So in light of sinfulness and eternity, this is man's greatest need, is purification of his sin. Have you recognized your need? Today is the day to give your life to Christ. If you haven't, to repent of your sin, to trust in Him, to repent, meaning that you, it's a change of heart leading to a change of mind, which leads to a change in action that you turn from what you once agreed with that was in opposition of the truth of God. You turn from that. You turn to God. You embrace His truths and you walk with Him that you trust in the perfect work of a perfect God. Cry out to Him. You look to Him. You can live. 
and for the ones who have received forgiveness, has it produced in you an attitude of gratitude as you consider this entrance into the throne room? Does it move you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. God, we thank you that you are set apart from us, unworthy creatures, yet in Christ you make us worthy and whole, and you give us a righteousness that's foreign to us. God, we thank you by the blood of Christ that we could be forgiven of sin, and you recreated us in Christ Jesus to walk in newness of life and to fulfill your purpose for us here on earth, Lord. But we look forward to a future hope and glory to one day be able to experience what Isaiah seen in this throne room. Although I'm sure that we will do nothing but fall at your feet and cry out to you, holy, holy, holy. And what a day that will be. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.